Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. In November of 1962, the radar tower that was overlooking the Black Sea on the western edge of Crimea, humanity, for the very first time, sent out a message to extraterrestrials. And it was just three Russian words from that radar station, the emphasis of which was the idea of peace. And several times since then, people have tried to figure out, is there a way for us to communicate with extraterrestrials? So far, we have gotten no response back. If you have, we have a prayer room in the, uh, in the atrium. This has happened multiple times. 1974, a couple of astronomers put together a project where they sent graphics of DNA in humans in the solar system to a cluster of stars 25,000 years, light years, excuse me, away. In 1972, the Pioneer spacecraft went out and took with it um, a, a plaque that was sketched with the diagram of hydrogen. Voyager 1, five years later, went out and carried its own interstellar package in the form of a golden record carrying messages of humans, maps, and music by Bach, Mozart, Blind Willie Johnson, and of course, Chuck Berry. And uh, apparently that golden record relies on the fact that they have a golden record player, apparently, to, to go with it. Multiple times, we've sent things out and hoping that E.T. will respond, and we're not so sure what they will think when they get it. This, this uh, message in particular, back in 2008, this is my favorite, Doritos beamed a 30-second advertisement towards a solar system just 42 light years away. What if the aliens don't like tortilla chips? We're in trouble, right? If you think about that. And then Craigslist, a couple of years before that, actually sent 100 advertisements out into the solar system, seeing if anybody out there apparently needs some bookshelves from Ikea that are gently used, right? This is the, this is the idea. And the, and the thing is, for whatever reason, humanity keeps sending these messages out there. And to be honest with you, it's actually heavily debated in the scientific community. Should we be doing this? Should we not be doing this? Because some people say, yes, we should be doing this because what if there is life out there? And what if they then contact us? And what could we learn? And how could we sustain ourselves? And what kind of unique things could come our way if we'd be open to learning from people in other worlds? And other scientists say, maybe we'd be better off to leave well enough alone. What if they don't like tortilla chips? What if they find us tasty, right? That's the, that's the fear, right? So just leave it alone. And it's an interesting conversation, probably not one you thought you'd have in church. But when I read about this, here's what, here's what ran through my mind. That the way some people view speaking out into the universe is the way some of us think about God. Because some of us kind of go, maybe he's out there, maybe he's not. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll send a little communication. I'll, I'll send a little prayer out there. Maybe he'll hear me, maybe he won't. I might get something back, I might not. And some of us even think, you know, maybe it's good for me to reach out to God and see what he would have to say to me. And others of us go, mm, maybe I ought to leave well enough alone. Maybe I don't wanna find out what he would have to say if he's even really out there. We're starting a, a new series of messages and it, it'll make more sense here in a couple minutes why we're calling it this, but we're calling it Life on Mars. And the idea of this whole series as we're looking at Acts chapter 17, in fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. We're gonna look at who God really is because we live in a world and in a culture where for a lot of people, the idea of God 
who he is, how he communicates with us, is vastly misunderstood, and that's what we're going to see in this passage in Acts chapter 17. And for many of us, we may kind of like those people trying to communicate with E.T., we may, from time to time, maybe shoot a little something out there and hoping God responds, but we're not really sure how to think about him. So this series of messages has two goals. One is, if, if you're not really sure who God is, we want to help you to, to learn who he is and how you can communicate with him. And two, if you do know him, how do you help others to experience him for themselves? This is what we find when we get to Acts chapter 17. If you're familiar, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. When we got to Acts chapter 16, if you remember Paul and his team, it was, it was Silas and Timothy and Luke and, and others. They were traveling from place to place and they were preaching the gospel. They were telling people about Jesus. They were starting churches. They had this vision that told them to go to a place called Macedonia. And they were in cities like Philippi. They went to Thessalonica. They went to Berea. And if you remember in Thessalonica, we talked very briefly about the fact that the people that were there began to revolt against him, kind of ran him out of town. And so he goes to Berea and how the Bereans were more noble because they studied the scriptures to see what they said. And in Berea, they had this giant row of plastic file cabinets. And they, no, 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 that's not, you know what I'm talking about, right? So they studied the scriptures. Well, what we won't read about is that in Berea, the people from Thessalonica heard that Paul was there and they took a road trip up to Berea, and they started kind of the same fuss that they had in Thessalonica, and they ran Paul out of Berea as well, to the point that, that, that Paul's friend said, Paul, <laughs> let's do this. Why don't you just go somewhere and lay low for a little while? We're, we're going to send you off to Athens by yourself. We think Athens will be a place where you can kind of just blend in. Let's just be quiet for a little while. We're going to take care of some other things, and then eventually... Silas and Timothy, they'll come and join you in Athens. But for a little while, Paul, why don't you just take a little rest, take a break, and lay low for a little while? That's where we are in Acts chapter 17, verse 17. Watch what happens here. Or verse 16, excuse me. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, we, we may know certain things about ancient Greece or, or the city of Athens. Sometimes we think of the Olympics or we think of Greek mythology. And you've, you've probably seen some images from those places, whether you've realized it or not. Athens was, in, in, uh, in, the, in the high times of the Greek empire, that was the, the place that was the seat of learning. It's where the university was. It's where the philosophers were. It was where all the, the exciting learning and ideas happened. And it was filled with all these idols and all this mythology to the point that it was just a beautiful place with all these things that Paul was able to see. Here's some, here's some remnants of those things. We'll show you a couple pictures. This first one is what's called the Acropolis. It was a hill that looked out over the city of Athens, and up on the top of it were multiple temples and altars and things that were built to honor the, the gods and goddesses of Greek mythology and then later the, of, of Roman mythology. The biggest one there, here's a closer picture of it, is what's called the Parthenon. Anybody ever heard of the Parthenon? There's a, there's a model, a replica of it that was, is built in Nashville. What's interesting of that is that, that that was the temple that was built to the goddess Athena. And she's the one that Athens was, was named after. She was kind of the patron saint or patron goddess, if you will, of that city. And then from up on the Acropolis, you could look down at this next kind of little hill that was there that was called the Areopagus. 
And this was a place where in, in, the, in the high times of that city, the council, the ruling body would come together and they would meet there. And they would meet on this place called the Areopagus. Later in Paul's day, they didn't meet on this rocky hill. They met down in the city, but they continued to have the same name. They were called the Areopagus. What did that mean? Well, Ares was the Greek name of the god of war. So Areopagus was the hill of Ares. The Greek god of war is Ares. The Roman god of war, who, who would have been in, in charge in that time, Paul's time would have been the Romans, is known as Mars. So that was a place that was called Mars Hill. Have you ever heard of that before? Like in biblical times, we talk about Mars Hill sometimes. And that's why we've called this series Life on Mars, because it was from this place that you'll find out more as we read this, what the people are like and what their thoughts were like, that Paul came, and when he came telling them about God, it was as if he'd come from another planet to them. Look at what we read. Acts chapter 17, verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Sounds like a nice group of people, doesn't it? <laughs> What's this babbler trying to say? You ever been called a babbler? I have. Most, most Sundays when, when, <laughs> when some of you are at lunch. I've been called that. Now, what that word, what that word originally meant was it was the picture of a bird that would walk around and peck at seeds that were on the ground. And with that picture in mind, what they took it to mean was of someone who would just go around and grab at all these different ideas and then begin to talk about them or spout them off as if they knew what they were talking about. Have you ever met a babbler? Somebody who talks like they know what they're talking about, but they're really just running their mouth? Paul, they said, you sound like a babbler. You keep talking about these foreign gods. Verse 19, look at this. Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's the council that started on the hill of Ares or on Mars Hill, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Isn't that an interesting description? They did nothing with their time but watch cable TV, but, but hear all about <laughs> verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Fascinating. And all those gods and all those structures and all those temples and all those altars, there was one that Paul found that grabbed his attention. It wasn't to Athena. It wasn't to Mars. It wasn't to Ares. It wasn't to Zeus. It was to an unknown God, which raises some fascinating points for us. Our, our, our hope in this series 
is to introduce all of us to God in, in a little bit of a better way. And looking at these verses that we've just read, as we study them, it causes us to ask some questions. What I wanna do today is go back through those verses and I wanna talk about three questions about God. Three questions about God. Maybe some things that these verses help us to think about. And for some of us, this may help to reinforce things that we know about God. For others, it might challenge us about the way that we consider the God of the universe. Here's the first question that this passage of scripture causes us to ask. Number one, is God just another idea? When you talk about God, see, just another idea. We live in a world where there's no shortage of information. You can very quickly log on and have literally libraries of libraries at your fingertips. The information is all out there, which means we live in a world filled with ideas. And in that world, is God just another one of those ideas? You know, for so many people, the, the way that we think is, hey, look, you have your truth and I'll have my truth. I'll believe what I want to believe. You believe what you want to believe, and that's okay, but is that the way we see God? Go back to this passage. Look what the, the people said to him in Athens. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And look at this. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas and Paul was just bringing them another one. Here's just another idea. They were known for being people who were curious, but to a point that it was almost silly or distracting or even deceptive, one of their historians wrote about the people in Athens that there was a visitor who came there and said, you are the best people at being deceived by something new that is said. These were interesting folks. When you read that, you, you, you've got different, maybe, maybe three different groups we need to consider. One are those that just had all these idols, that worshiped all these gods, that had all these temples, and were open to worship whatever was out there. Some of them were Epicureans, and some of them were Stoics. Now, you rem may remember those words from like a world civilization class in high school or philosophy course you may have taken. Anybody ever heard of the Epicureans and the Stoics? Does that, does that ring a bell with anybody? Yes? No. Okay, so, so with some of you, how many of you go, yeah, I've heard of them, but I, I can't remember since I took the test. Like, I closed that information out. That's me. I read them, I was like, oh, yeah, I know they're philosophers. I don't have any idea what they philosophize about, right, though? Now, the Epicureans had one focus in life. Their focus was pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That was it for them. And it started very noble, but it eventually turned into kind of debauchery. And they were just looking for how can we find pleasure in life? They, they believed that there were gods, but that the gods had nothing really to do with people. And they definitely did not believe in an afterlife. They believed you have this life, make the most out of it. The Stoics, on the other hand, were what were called pantheists, 
where, where they kind of thought that God was everywhere. He was in creation and he was out there, almost like an energy or kind of like, like a force that was out there. And their whole goal was self-mastery, self-discipline, to get to the point where they just pushed away pain and pleasure in a place where you would just find this, this peace where you, where you kind of felt nothing. So these are ideas very different from what Paul is trying to communicate. And so you have these Epicureans and you have these Stoics and you have these idolaters. And what's interesting is can you tell that they speak about Paul with kind of this hint of arrogance? What are you trying to say to us, babbler? But the way that Luke writes this, he helps us to see that they were the ones who had no idea. Because when they talked to him about he was, what he was teaching, they said, you're teaching us about Jesus and the resurrection. And when you read it in the Greek, what you see that they're saying is they're calling Jesus and the resurrection two different gods. That Jesus was the, the little G God they were talking about, and he had a goddess who traveled with him named Resurrection. Like that was like their idea, because that was their filter. That was the only way they saw the world. They saw it through the lens of gods and goddesses. So who is this Jesus and resurrection that you're telling us about? And this helps us to see something. Because although we don't have big marble temples and we don't talk about the, the mythology that we have, for many of us, there's a lot of ideas that we have floating around out there about who God is and about what other things take the place of gods in our lives. And one of the things that Paul will point out when, when we come back to this text the next time and we really look at who God is, it's important for us to see God is either the God of your life or just another God in your life. He's one or the other. Either he's the one that is the focus of your life, either he's the one that gives your life purpose and meaning, either he's the one that you find your life in or he's just another idea that's out there. And for many of us, we, we actually like to keep God out there. We acknowledge him. We, we, li we like to see that he's out there, but he's not the God in our life. He's, he's just another idea that we give some mental assent to or that we give some time or resource to. Or maybe even more, for some of us, we ask the question, how do you even know there is a God? I mean, yeah, it's a cool idea, and if you want to believe in him, that's cool. I just, I'm not so sure that I can believe that there is a God. Some of you may be asking that question, and probably for all of us, we'll probably encounter somebody who has those thoughts. If someone says to you, how do I know there's a God, how do you answer that? Now, we don't have time to, to go into a, a long apologetic argument. Sometimes we use the word apologetics, and the idea behind that word is we're talking about how do you defend your faith. Apologetics is, is the study of defending your faith. So we don't have time to build a, a, a strong apologetic argument, but can I give you just four thoughts about when somebody says, how do you know there's a God? How, how can you prove that? One is what's called, and we'll, we'll use kind of the technical terms to help us understand it here, is what's called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. Now that has nothing to do with getting your hair cut. Okay, that's a cosmetologist, that's different. This is the cosmological argument, which says that everything that has a beginning has a cause. Where did the cosmos, where did the world come from? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. It's the law of cause and effect. You've heard of that, right? And so if we have the universe, where did it come from? Well, it had to originate somewhere. 
Which takes us then to the second argument, which is what we would call the design argument. And these two kind of go hand in hand. There's the cosmological argument, and then there's the design argument, which says that there's evidence of design, which shows evidence of a designer. When you have evidence of a design, it shows evidence of a designer. So think of it in this way. You're taking a walk in the woods, and all of a sudden your foot hits something, and you look down, and there's this intricately made clock that's there. Kind of your old school clock that has all the gears and the springs and the the hands that move and the little bell that rings when there's an alarm. You got it pictured in your head? You know what I'm talking about? And you kind of kick one of those and you pick it up and you look at it. You're not going to look at that clock and go, well, look at how all these pieces fell in one place and formed this clock. Are you going to say that? No, you're going to look at it and go, wow, like that was intricately made take it apart and you look at it and you go, somebody had to really think about this. Somebody had to piece this thing together. There must have been quite a brilliant designer who would create something so wonderful. The reality is when you look at the universe, when you look at our planet, when you look at humanity, when you look at our bodies, when you look at the smallest level of life, you cannot see the detail and the intricacy, and the design, and not say to yourself, boy, that must have taken some kind of a designer. Discovery Magazine published an article two years ago where they followed up on some research where somebody did some computer models of, of of the universe and put it together and figured out just by their best estimation that there are, and clock this, 700 quintillion planets that are probably out there. 700 quintillion, and here's what they came up with, that the only one that can really sustain life is the planet Earth. Now, 700 quintillion is seven followed by 20 zeros. If in a couple of moments when you start to fall asleep, that wasn't a prophetic word, but you might, just write that out, okay, to kind of see how big that is. Seven followed by 20 zeros. And here's what they said when they look at this, and this is the language they use. Earth appears to have been dealt a fairly lucky hand. Because as they look at a galaxy like the Milky Way, they see that when they look at other planets, they're very different from Earth. Many of them are larger, older, and this is the conclusion, they're unlikely to support life. You have to have these fundamental requirements if you're gonna support life. There's what's called a habitable zone, that you have to be within a certain distance of a star that the planet might be uh, orbiting that's in the habitable zone, or they call it, I think this is really cool, they call it the Goldilocks region. And here's why. Because it's not too big and it's not too small. That region is... You never knew that a fairy tale would come in handy at church, did you? (laughs) Right? Because it has to be just right so that water can be in a liquid state and in that way be able to supply life. What's interesting is the, Bible, the, the, the article never mentions God. It just says that earth has been dealt a lucky hand, which means somewhere there's gotta be a master dealer, isn't it? This design argument with the cosmological argument just shows us very simply that there is a God and so many other explanations that we put out there to try to explain him away. At the end of the day, they just fall apart. Two other arguments real quick. One is is what's called, and we don't have time to really tap into this, but what's called the morality argument, that only a moral lawgiver can offer us true right and wrong. Evolution doesn't do that. Scripture says God has written on our hearts as humanity 
the truth about life, about right, about wrong. And there's something powerful in that, that the reason we know right and wrong, and even the reason why there's good and even evil in the world, is because of our relation or our lack of relation to a perfect creator and a God who is out there. Fourth one, just real quick, is what Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the, the famed philosopher, called the wager argument. He called it the wager argument, that it makes more sense to bet on the reality of God's existence than to not. He said, look, what's, what's the safer bet? You're better off to bet that there is a God and then there not be than to believe that there's not a God and then have to meet him one day. Does that make sense? Right? And he uses this argument, which makes a ton of sense. In fact, if you're reasoning with someone, this may be a way to at least get them to begin to open up their minds to the truth that there is a God. However, if you carry this one out too far, it could lead you to kind of a shady conclusion, which takes us to our second question. First question is, is God just another idea? Number two, is God just an insurance policy? Number two, is God just an insurance policy? Here's what's interesting. Paul goes out and he starts walking around Athens and he gets on this double-decker bus and he does this guided tour throughout the streets of Athens and he's looking at things and from the top of the bus he looks down and he sees, there was no bus, he sees this altar to an unknown God. Really interesting, right? Where, where, where they come up with this? Altar to an unknown God. Now look, this wasn't something that Paul just threw in there to make his speech interesting. This wasn't some fact that Luke just doctored up. Did you get that? Yeah, okay. You were here last week. Okay, so here's the deal. If you look at history from Athens, one of the things that you see is that there were multiple places within the city where history records that they had these altars to an unknown God. Legend has it that at one point, years before Paul, there was a plague that was all throughout that land. And so the individuals began to offer sacrifices to the different gods and the different goddesses, but the plague wasn't lifted. And so finally the people in Athens decided, maybe there's a God we don't know about. And so they built an altar to a God whose name they did not know. They offered a sacrifice on there, and legend has it that when they did, the plague stopped. And so they began to worship this God whose name they did not know. And why not? Because if that God's mad at you, it's a good idea for you to offer them a sacrifice so that you don't get punished. And maybe if you do offer them a sacrifice, they'll bless you in some way. What a cool idea. It's a great insurance policy. We don't know who you are, but unknown God will worship you. Because who knows? If we don't, we might get punished. If we do, we might get blessed. This sounds like a great idea. We'll worship you. We'll take out that insurance policy and see how it plays out. The funny part is, a lot of us do that with God today. God, I really don't know who you are, but I know if I don't at least kind of throw you a bone from time to time, that I might have to pay the price. And maybe if I do show up to church every now and again, there's some blessing that'll come to my life. And we think of God in the same way that we would think of an insurance policy. And the truth is, let's just be honest, and this is a point that Paul's trying to make to them. He's saying, guys, it's not enough. This, this unknown God to you is a God who wants to be known by you. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe a very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers 
of an unknown God. And God wants something more from us. Think of these two questions for a minute. Is God just another idea? And is God just your insurance policy? And Paul's challenging them because what he wants them to see is that their view of the world is causing them to see God inappropriately. Because they were viewing everything through the lens of gods and goddesses, when he talked about Jesus, they thought Jesus was just another God with the goddess resurrection by his side. And because they were just looking to cover their bases and avoid punishment and obtain blessing, they were willing to just throw anything out there to any God who might be willing to help them. And Paul was saying to them, look, there's, there's a more accurate way, there's a better way, there's a true way to see the world. How you see the world filters how you see God. Think about that for a moment. How you see the world, your, your worldview, your perspective on things, how you see the world is the filter for how you see God. But let me flip that for you to a way that's, that's probably more healthy. How you see God filters how you see the world. And if you'll get a healthy perspective of God, it will change the way you see the world. How you see the world filters how you see God, but how you see God filters how you see the world. Let me, let me give you an example of that. When I, was, when I was young, probably middle school, high school, when I, would, when I would go to church, I would go to church because I had to go to church. I'd go to church because my mom and dad told me I had to go to church. And then they said, well, hey, you probably should go to youth group too. And I went, okay, I'll, I'll go to youth group because mom and dad say I have to. And I'll go to youth group because there's girls there. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? I had, I had my priorities in line. And then at some point, what happened in the midst of that is I realized that God was there too. And when I encountered him, my perspective changed. I no longer went to church because I was obligated. I went to church because when I went, I had an opportunity to meet God in a special way. Corporate worship took on a different idea. It gave me a place where I could connect and grow and serve. You ever heard that before? Right, it was a powerful thing in my life, but that whole shift changed because my mindset about God went from obligation because I was just viewing through the world and what I wanted to when I began to look at the world through God's lens, when he became the filter, then I saw the world more clearly. Does that make sense? Look, your worldview depends on what you look at first. If you're gonna look at yourself, if you're gonna look at your wants, if you're gonna make yourself God, then that'll skew the way you look at the world. But your worldview all depends on what you look at first. And if you'll look at God first, if you'll make him the filter for your life, it'll change your perspective. It'll help you to see the world accurately, which takes us to the last thing. And truthfully, the most important question we'll ask today, number one, is God just another idea? Two, is God just an insurance policy? Number three, is God living in you? Is God living in you? Look, this was completely the point of Paul's, Paul's speech. And when we, when we get back to this text, you're gonna watch and see how Paul says this, how he talks about who God is. And he repeatedly uses this idea of God, this unknown God, the one that you've maybe been throwing some prayers up to, but you're not really sure he's out there. The truth is this God is not only alive, he's not only real, but he doesn't just wanna be around you. He doesn't just wanna be with you. He wants to live in you. Paul doesn't just say that in Acts 17. Watch what he says um, later, because he wants them to see the difference between them and the idols they've been chasing after. There is a longing in every heart to know the one true God. 
And this is important for us to see. We look at it in all these different directions. We search for God in all these different places. But when it comes right down to it, there is a longing in every human heart to know the one true God. The the reality is, though, we look for him everywhere but him. And we set up these things that we think will satisfy us, and the Bible refers to them as idols. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8 says, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. They make their own things. And man, aren't we all guilty of this? At some point, we take something that's made with human hands. We take a human. We take money. We take power. We take reputation. We take success. We take things. We take our own ideas, and we put them out there, and we put them ahead of God, and we look at God through the lens of those things. And the Bible says that anything we give our energy, our time, our focus, our mind to in a way that excludes God becomes an idol in our lives. How valuable are those idols? Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Where's my gardeners out there? <laughs> a neat little analogy. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. The book of Habakkuk, he digs down even deeper into the worthlessness of these idols. Back at chapter 2, verse 18, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Anybody remember Pinocchio? (laughs) Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Do you remember what um, separated humanity from all of creation? God, God made humanity, and then he, does anybody remember? <laughs> he breathed the breath of life into us. We are made to find the source of our breath. And anything we search after outside of God is just gonna leave us breathless. Anything we give our worship to other than God is just an empty substitute. And I'm not saying that all these things are bad. I mean, so many of the things that become idols in our lives are good things. They're necessary things. They're healthy things. But if at some point we're looking at those things through our own lens instead of looking at it the way that God sees it, it can become an idol in our lives. Instead of those empty lives without breath in us, what God wants to give to us is this, Romans chapter 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Know this, everybody. Life is found in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else and no other person and no other thing. Life is found in Jesus Christ. First question. Is God just another idea? Second question, is God just your insurance policy? Third question, and the truth is, this is, this is the one that actually matters more than any other. Is God living in you? 
fact, you don't, you don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to shout out an answer. You, you don't need to respond in any way. I, I just want you to think, everybody, whether you're in this room or you're watching on a screen somewhere, how do you answer that one? Is God living in you? It's either yes or no. Because if your answer is maybe or I don't know, then you're, you're probably in more no than yes, right? Is he living in you, yes? Or is he living in you, no? Hold on to your answer for just a moment. Because based on your answer, then there's a response that I want to challenge you with. If your answer is yes, God's living in me, then my challenge to you is, and what are you doing with that? How are you allowing him to live in you? There was a part of this passage that, that wrecked me, that I kept coming back to and going, how, how, how does this... How does this affect me? How does this work in me? Go back to the very beginning of this story. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, right back to the beginning where we were. It says, while Paul was waiting for them. Remember that? What's Paul supposed to be doing? <laughs> Laying low, taking a break, hanging out till Silas and Timothy get there. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Think of where Paul was at. He's just coming back from Philippi. Do you remember in Philippi where there was that slave girl that kept yelling out to them and Paul called out and the demon that was in her left and her life was changed and she was set free? Do you remember that? He'd just seen that happen for somebody. Do you remember when he was in prison and there was the earthquake and they got set free and the jailer in Philippi came to Christ? Do you remember that? He'd just seen that life change. And then he went to Thessalonica and he preached the gospel and he watched light bulbs come on and people be forgiven. Then he went to Berea and when they opened their Bibles and they sought God's word, their lives were changed and he could, he could name person after person after person. He could go back to his own experience on the road to Damascus and he wanted to shout out from the top of the Acropolis, Jesus changes your life. And look, you got all these idols out here and you're searching in all these places and you're knocking on all these empty doors and it broke his heart. He was greatly distressed because he saw all these people who were trying to find hope and were trying to find meaning, were trying to find life, and they were only looking for it in places that had no breath in them, places that were dead. If you answered yes to that question, is God living in you, then when was the last time you were greatly distressed for someone far from God? When was the last time you saw a coworker or a neighbor or you got a text from a family member, or you bumped into somebody in the store, and there was something that hit you in your heart, and you were greatly distressed because you saw that they were far from God, and that the only answer to what they were seeking for was going to be through Jesus Christ. Look, what breaks your heart moves you to action. And the problem is, I spend so much of my time moving so fast that I never put my heart in a place where it can be broken. Anybody? And maybe today's a day where the Spirit of God is speaking to you and saying, when was the last time you were greatly distressed? When was the last time your heart was broken so that the life I gave to you, I could use you to offer to somebody else? If you said yes to that question, then I challenge you to pray this prayer. God, break our hearts for those without you. God, break our hearts for those without you. But what if you answered no? What if the question is, uh, is God living in you? And your answer was, I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know, or maybe, or 
He was once, or, well, I go to church, or I, I pray when I'm in trouble, or, or no. If you can't say that, that he's actively a part of your life, then what does that mean? And what do you do? Outside of um, Cody, Wyoming, on a hilltop in a valley that's known as the Wapiti Valley, over 30 years ago, an eccentric engineer named Francis Lee Smith started to build a cabin. It's a place that he wanted his family to live, and there'd been a, a wildfire near there, and he salvaged some of the timber, and single-handedly, he began to build this cabin. It took him 12 years to build this log house, and it's got all these crazy staircases and these haphazardly protruding balconies on the top of this hill. We got a couple of pictures to show you of that house. Looks like quite a place, doesn't it? Here's, here's an image where you can kind of see it more from a distance. After he got the first floor done, he took up residence along with his wife and two kids, and he never stopped construction. Night after night, by the light of a single bulb, he let his crazy infatuation drive him to build that house until eventually tore him apart. It wasn't even remotely cozy. There was no running water or plumbing or electricity except what was provided by a small generator. He had just a wood-burning stove on the first floor that they would use for warmth and they would use to cook with. The family dining room table was a large tree stump with smaller stumps around it for chairs. During the winter, the family would sleep in sleeping bags on the floor huddled around that stove, and during the summer, Smith would sleep in a hammock while his children would sleep in a separate oversized doghouse-like cabin on the front porch. Anybody already looking on Airbnb? <laughs> and there were plenty of wild animals who made the mansion their home with the family. Raccoons and skunks, wild cats, owls, and many other creatures would find refuge under the structure of the house. After a few years, his wife had had enough of that living and divorced him and took her two kids and moved to another town. You wonder why? <laughs> and occasionally, his kids would come to visit, but he was dejected. And so he just threw himself even more into the construction of this house, building addition after addition without blueprints, without a plan. In 1992, Smith lost his life to his obsession when he was working on one of the balconies and he fell and he died from the injuries he sustained in the fall and nobody found him until about two days later. And it's this kind of cruel picture of somebody who was so intent on building something with their life that at the end of the day was empty, that it had no power, that it didn't really matter, that it tore his family and his life apart left him basically with nothing, and in the end, it took his everything. And for some of you, that's not just an interesting story. For some of you, you wonder, is that my life? Is that where I am? Have I been investing my time and my energy and my life and my strength all into something that really just doesn't matter? And then you tell me that there's a God who's out there, that he's not just a crazy idea and he's not just somebody that you visit at Christmas and Easter to make sure everything's covered. You're, you're telling me that he's a God who not only wants to know me, but he, but he wants to live in me. How can I know that he really cares? Because he told you this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, friend, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish 
but everyone to come to repentance. Well, I'm going to guess getting right with him is not easy. It's probably got to be difficult. I probably got to clean up my act first. I probably need to make myself right, right, right. Isn't that what I need to do? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just, just all throughout this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Even if you're watching on a screen somewhere. You know, technology is powerful because, because we have the opportunity through television and Facebook and, and online and all these different ways to communicate. And I know that wherever God's word is, there, there's, there's life that God can bring. So whether you're in this room or you're watching on a screen somewhere, I want you to just take a moment again and ask yourself, yes or no, is God living in me? Maybe some of you that said yes the first time need to step back and, and say, maybe not. You know, maybe I thought so, but I realized that there's a hole in my life that can only be filled by God. Then there's no better moment than right now to fill that God-shaped hole in your life by finding Jesus as your Savior. That means the one who forgives you. Some of you, what you're longing for is forgiveness. He's your Savior and He's your Lord, the one who directs and guides our lives. And for some of us, that's desperately what we need. And so if you're here today or you're watching this, And you'd say to yourself, I know that God lives in me. I know that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. I find forgiveness and hope in my life in Him. If you know He's your Savior and your Lord, would you just raise your hand? That's you. You know it. You're affirming it in this moment. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Here's the second question. If you're here today and you're not sure, and you'd say today, I need Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I've tried doing it on my own. I've tried building my own life, and I can't do it on my own anymore. And today, what I need is Jesus to forgive me and give purpose to my life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Keep it raised for just a moment. Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? You say today, I need Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. Jesus, raise your hand. Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks. You can raise your hand. Put it right back down. Anybody else? Today, I need Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. If you raised your hand either one of those times, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your Son to die for my sin. I ask today that you'd forgive my sin, change my life, be my Savior, and be my Lord. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead in Jesus name amen and father I pray for those that prayed that prayer today for the first time or maybe for a a, a time again in their lives have said Jesus I commit my life to you God I need you living inside of me Lord I ask that you would help them to see and know your presence and grace. God, that Holy Spirit, you would confirm your work in their lives. God, that when they face difficulty or doubt, you would remind them of your love for them and that you would show them the great plan you have for their life as you live inside of them. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you, if you prayed that prayer today, whether for the first time or maybe uh, you're, you're, you're starting again that relationship with Jesus Christ, as you leave the auditorium today, I hope you grab one of these cards that says, I have decided. If you want to grab this and then take it to our connection center, which is out in the atrium, just kind of a glass-walled room to your left. We've got friends there who would love to meet with you. We have a gift we want to give to you, a Bible to help you be able to read and understand and talk with you about this decision that you've made today. If you're watching on a screen somewhere, if you go out to our website at ToledoCalvary.org, right at the very top, there's a link that says Jesus. And if you'll click there, there's information you can find about beginning a relationship with him. Would you stand with me today? I just want to say thank you for being with us. Father, as we go from here, we ask that you would go with us. God, may you be alive in us as we look to you. Send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.